0: This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church, located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. Anticipation was building. Something that felt reminiscent Of childhood, that giddy feeling you get as a boy when company is coming over was beginning to bubble up inside of him. Because after all, when you finally get to see your brother after years of him being gone, you get excited. And in that excitement, you plan ahead. You know exactly where he's going to sleep. You know what you're going to do after he gets done and you get done with your work for the day. You know what you're going to eat and where you're going to go and the places that you're going to show him, the things you're going to encourage him to try. You get excited. And you know he's excited too. Because after all, you live in a palace. Literally a palace. Sure, it's not yours, but it's still a palace and you get to live there. He gets to hang out with you there. This is a palace that's bathed in brilliant blues and reds with impressive mosaics along the halls and amazing colonnades in front of you, colonnades that shout, money lives here, power lives here, a king lives here. And as you walk towards the gates and the scent of frankincense and fresh-baked bread begins to waft through the air, you know this is going to be good. No, you know this is going to be great. And when Hananiah finally arrives, it is. You give him a big embrace. You let him know how glad you are to see him. You ask him the questions of how the journey was. And when those questions are answered and he's finally settled in, You ask the question that everybody asks in moments like this. You ask that question of, what's the news? Tell me, what's going on with you? How are things going for you in Jerusalem? That's when the shoe drops. That's when you begin to see that look come over his face, that look that says, it's not good news. And he begins to unravel a story of desperate times, that the people, the survivors in Jerusalem are in a desperate situation. They're in trouble and they're ashamed. And the picture that he's painting is a picture of a dangerous scene with walls having been torn down, gates that were originally destroyed with fire still lying there in the ashes and heaps for all these years. And then he tells you that the king The king of this palace, the king who's your boss, is the one who has given the order that they're not to be rebuilt. You could hear a pin drop in that moment. See, for 90 years, your people have been trying to rebuild that city. And 90 years later, that city and the people that live there still live in the wreckage. They're still wrecked. News like that? Well, it can wreck you. It can wreck you. Your people, your nation, your home has been ravaged and there is nothing and no one fixing it. Your knees buckle under the weight of that grief. You sit broken, wrecked, mourning. See, when you know God's intended design, his original plan for something and how great it was meant to be and then you're confronted with a reality that is so far from that, your heart breaks. It breaks for the people you love, for the friends you know now live there. Your heart breaks. And sure, you could bury that feeling like everybody else in food and alcohol. Or you could do something else with it. You could take it somewhere else. You could go in the opposite direction and you could fast and pray. You could go without instead and spend that time calling on God through the tears. And far from a God, how could you let this happen kind of prayer where you rail against His justice, instead, what erupts out of your heart is, oh Lord. Oh, Yahweh, God of heaven, great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants. And then instead of questioning God's goodness, you confess and you throw yourself on his faithfulness. Because even in the midst of sorrow and brokenness and feeling wrecked, you press deeper into his faithfulness because you know who your God is. All the while, you're serving a man, a man who is standing in the way of your people's safety. And slowly... Days turn into weeks and weeks into months as you pray and you wait. It's right there at that point that we find our man, Nehemiah, this morning. As we step out of the scene and into the scriptures, we find Nehemiah has been praying for three, uh, maybe four months at this point before we come upon our passage this morning, before we come upon this opportunity in Nehemiah chapter two, verse one, that finally presents itself to Nehemiah. In Nehemiah chapter two, verse one, we read, that in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. So catch up here. Nehemiah is a cupbearer to the king. A cupbearer in that day and time is kind of like uh, one part secret service agent and one part companion to the king. And the king, in verse 2, he said to him, Why is your face sad, seeing you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. After months of sorrow, Nehemiah here, he accidentally lets his guard down. His sorrow is showing. And kings in that day and time, they tended to have one-way relationships with their servants. Uh, You were not to burden them with your problems. Literally, in that culture, as a cupbearer, as you would serve them, you would not even breathe on them. You would put your hand in front. This was a one-way relationship. But the king asks him about his problem, his sorrow. And Nehemiah here, he's afraid, but he's more afraid not of just breaking protocol, but of telling the truth. See, because it was Artaxerxes in Ezra chapter 4 that told the Jews to stop preparing Jerusalem out of fear that the Jews might rebel. And in spite of that fear, though, that Nehemiah is sensing, he answers truthfully. He says, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city and the place of my father's graves lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. Now remember that, underline that that right there. Verse 5, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. I don't know about you, but there haven't been a lot of times in my life when I asked my boss or my coach uh, if I could do the exact opposite that they had just said to do. And then more than that, ask them that question in public and then go ahead and ask them for their help to go on and do what they told you not to do. (laughs) That's a very rare request indeed, but that's what unfolds Here in verse six, the king, and the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me, to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple for the wall of the city for the house that I shall occupy and the king granted me what I asked why for the good hand of my god was upon me now, i want you to realize something god uses the broken god uses the broken I think brokenness in our lives, like with Nehemiah, it presents not only the greatest danger, but the greatest opportunity. And in Nehemiah's brokenness and prayer from chapter 1, it is what sets up and transforms his response in chapter 2 that we just read. There's something about his understanding of who God is in his brokenness that influences and changes His response changes what he does. For us, aside from what God thinks about you, the single most important thing about you is what you think about God. Our knowledge of who God is defines what we do in response. Yours and mine. Our knowledge of who God is defines what we do in response. Friends, in life, it is who before do. It is who before do. See, knowing who God is, or as others have described this as intimacy with God, a deeper knowledge of who God is, it redefines how we go about living our lives and the choices we make, our responses. I like how one pastor said it. Our intimacy with God is his highest priority for our life, and it determines the impact of our Life. Knowing deeper and deeper who God is for a believer is a game changer in their life. It's a game changer. The greater you understand, not just know about, but understand who he is, the more it will transform how you respond. Even in, and I would say maybe especially in the more difficult circumstances, when we are seeing people suffer, when we have a fear of someone, when we maybe have even a dream of something we would love to do, but we're not so sure it's ever going to happen, or in dealing with past choices that were wrong and they involved others. Let me tell you, your understanding of who God is, it affects your responses to each of those issues, and while we're still wondering in our life, what am I going to do, God is showing us that what matters first is not what we're going to do, but who he is. We struggle to, I think, to to see how these two things are connected. But think of it this way. Uh, When I was first dating Adele, uh, I I ran into this with her father. I was uh, her first, last, and only boyfriend. Praise God. And... uh, and one evening, I remember uh, <clears throat> remember taking Adele out for dinner. And while we were driving in the car, I got a, a text message from her sister. Yes, texting and driving, bad idea. Moving on. And the, text me- <laughs> and the text message said that her dad was really upset because I hadn't asked for permission. And I hadn't said what time I would have her home by. Woo. What do you think I did? You bet. I picked up the phone and I put a smile on and I dialed that number and I said, hi, Dan, uh, Mr. Dinkler, uh, Pastor, Reverend Dinkler, sir. Hey, I, w- I just realized I did not uh, let you know what, what time uh, I was hoping to have Adele back by. Would 7.45 be too late, sir? <laughs> Oh, oh, that'd be nine o'clock would be okay. Oh, thank you. You God bless, you know, bye-bye now. Right? See, I quickly realized I needed to pay attention to not just what I was planning, but I had better start paying attention, close attention, to what her father's policies and expectations were too. Right? See who he was, his character and the standards for his family. They needed to start affecting my responses to certain situations. And that meant that I, I needed to get to know and work at understanding what those were, who he was. And for the life of a Christian, knowing who our God is, it affects all of our responses in every situation. But for many of us, we don't know him personally. That our knowledge of him in most areas of life, it's only brain deep at best. It's been assembled through some random things we've heard here and there. For others of us, as A.W. Tozer writes, he, God, is a deduction from evidence which they consider adequate. But he remains personally unknown to the individual. To many others, God is but an ideal, another name for goodness or beauty or truth. He is law or life, the creative impulse back at the phenomena of existence. See, having only a surface level knowledge of who he is, knowledge that hasn't gone much deeper, the mental ascent is insufficient. We must know him Personally, for it to change what we do. And the more, and, and really what's, what's unique about this personal relationship with God, as we, we long to know Him more, is that that is not just some kind of like technical detail in the process of understanding His will. It's not just some technical detail. It's that he's not just the father that we that we need to know to, to keep enjoying this courtship of life. No, he is the life recording. He's not a distant entity watching over the details of our life. He is our life. Knowing him is the point of the process. It is the point of our life as a follower of Jesus Christ, to know him, pursuing a greater and deeper and higher understanding then of who God is, that is what eventually affects all that we do. It's who before do. And in this passage, you can see how it applies to at least two situations that Nehemiah gets faced with, both of which we're very familiar with in, in our own personal lives. Let me show you the first example from this text here. Think back with me. What was Nehemiah's response to the crushing headlines about Jerusalem? Well, we find it back in verse four. It was, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. The first example is comfort and brokenness. Now, if you think about it, his response here, Nehemiah's response, is kind of odd. I mean, Nehemiah, his parents, and his grandparents had probably never even seen Jerusalem. So why is he so broken hearted? I mean, you and I, we hear news reports all the time of major problems in cities across the world, and we're not in tears over it, right? Is he just a big softie? What, what's, what's going on here? No. What we see from Nehemiah's response in his prayer is that he knows the role that God had for Israel to play. That that in God's heart, that the place of Jerusalem as a city and as a temple had a special place. And so he's broken here precisely because he does know who God is. He's broken for the right reasons. And so he turns to God for comfort in that brokenness. Now think about it. When you and I get upset... At traffic or the news or the kids or finances or whatever, and we respond by cutting somebody off or by degrading some human being or by yelling or worrying or drinking, what does your solution say about your problem? Ask the question what does my solution, what does my comfort say about why I'm broken, about why I'm upset? What is it saying? This is a really small example for myself, but I, 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 really, uh, I realized a couple weeks ago that I had started to pick up this habit that when I get a, um, a, a really, you know, not necessarily a nasty gram email, you know, I never get those as a pastor, but, uh, you know, when I get a hard email, a distressing email, I notice that I started to flip over to a news headline or something, anything, uh, a quick distraction, not long, maybe 60 seconds, But a week ago, I suddenly did that on Reflex. And the counselor side in me is going, well, that's an interesting development, right? And not the good kind of interesting development, right? Because what am I doing? I'm treating my frustration with a distraction to bury it. I'm treating my frustration with a distraction. What are our sources of comfort, though? What are they saying about why we're upset? Why we're really upset. What are we turning to in the midst of that that points to why we are broken in that moment? What might that message be whispering that maybe this is a really difficult problem where you see yourself as being on your own, that you have to figure it out all by yourself? See, if our knowledge of God is only a brain-deep knowledge, We won't look to him for comfort in that moment, or at least not for very long. But in those moments, the ones where we have truly been wronged and we stay focusing on him through our problem, through our tears, for our comfort, that's when our intimacy with him really begins to grow. And it keeps us from making idols out of even the good sources of comfort in life, As long as he is the first, the premier source of comfort that we turn to in our brokenness. It's here that we can take a little page of Nehemiah's playbook and and learn to take our brokenness first to God in lingering prayer. Prayer that's not a, a flyby, but lingers. Now the second example from this text of how Nehemiah's understanding of God it not only defines his response of looking to God for comfort and brokenness, but it's also where he is looking to God in the face of fear. Fear. The face of fear, he's looking to God for courage. We've already seen some reasons uh, for why Nehemiah's request would require some courage if it had gone wrong. But you could tack on to that concern uh, uh, with that request. Uh, reasons for uh, to be concerned if it had gone right. He would be giving up his career. He'd be traveling thousands of miles to go take on a project that nobody else had been able to succeed at in 90 years. There's not an insurance policy on this earth that's big enough to cover all of that risk. There's a lot of pressure here. So what's behind Nehemiah's response of courage? Well, consistently throughout the book of Nehemiah, we see him responding to the pressures of fear with prayer by pressing deeper into prayer with God. If you look at Nehemiah's prayer that you underlined, the prayer that he's actually leaning on for this giant request was the prayer from chapter 1, where he has this comparison in the prayer of the God of heaven The great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. And then he contrasts it with his picture of the king. In verse 11 where he says, this man. That's it. That's his whole description of the king. It's just this man. His description of God, great, awesome, powerful, strong hand. His description of the king, this man. See... Fear wants to constantly distort the sizes, the, 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 the length, how big, how mean, and how strong our problems and situations actually are. Fear wants to distort all that. For a Christian, intimacy with God, knowing who he is at a deep level, is a source of courage because it lets you size up the situation again correctly. It lets you size up the people in the situation correctly. Friends, we know something of that kind of fear that Nehemiah felt in this chapter. I had a situation just a couple weeks ago where someone came into my office and they said something. And as soon as I heard it, I began to have that ice cold feeling running up my my veins, that tingling sensation, you know that? It's the one right before the heart attack, but it's, it's that ice cold sensation, you know. And, and, and I got up from my desk and I walked straight towards that problem. I took it head on, right? And dealt with it the best I could. But, you know, I would have done a lot better in that situation had I paused and breathed the prayer that Nehemiah pr- prayed. Had I rightly sized up the situation and the pressures in it? See, biblically, sinful fear is ungodly pressure that affects our obedience. Sinful fear is ungodly pressure that affects our obedience. It's not just the butterflies in the stomach. It's more than that. It's allowing the pressure to dictate your response. And if allowed, ungodly pressure will always shape, guess what? an ungodly response, ungodly pressure of fear. If we let it, it will always shape an ungodly response. That's why it's so important to size up the situation correctly, to know God as great and awesome. It's just like this example where you, know, you might end up for yourself smack dab in the middle of a tough conversation and you feel that voice of yours starting to quiver <laughs> a little bit Take a deep breath. Remind yourself who your God is. Lean on a prayer life where you have consistently sought God as the one who is great, who is awesome, who is powerful, and more. So that you don't respond in fear. Ask yourself, does my prayer life, does does your prayer life elevate your view of God? Is it elevating God? Am I sizing up situations correctly? Or when I'm praying, you know, am am I praying, oh God, I don't know what you're gonna do about this one, right? We've been there, we've all prayed that prayer. But does our prayer life instead size up the situation correctly, elevate our view of God so that our first and our greatest fear is Him? Let me tell you, when God is your first and greatest fear, all the others get put in their place, or done away with altogether. Don't allow the pressure of fear to have victory over your obedience to the Lord. Now that kind of prayer life that lingers in prayer where it sizes up the situation correctly by elevating our view of God, that's a prayer life like what Nehemiah had. A kind of of who before do look at the world. But I want to drive this home a little bit deeper. And looking at the way that we're praying and focusing on God a little bit deeper. Because the biggest aspect of who God is that influences Nehemiah in this passage, that shapes his response, can be summed up in one word grace. Grace. See, friends, we can have courage, we can enjoy God's comfort in spite of our sin because of who our God is. That our God is a God of grace and mercy. It's part of who he is. Now don't miss this, friends. See, Nehemiah is known and loved for his leadership abilities, his administrative qualities, his abilities to plan, to delegate, to navigate, to cast vision. And I know our congregation is filled with leaders. And doubtless, if you knew the book of Nehemiah much before coming in here, you were familiar with it in the same way that I was, as a leadership manual for leadership purposes. And there's nothing wrong with that. But if I could offer you something from Nehemiah's life, it wouldn't be his leadership. It would be his understanding of grace. From his view of God's grace in sin to his view of grace in success in verse 8 where he writes, And the king granted me what I asked for, for the good hand of my God was upon me. From start to finish, he looks at it all through the lenses of grace. See, he realizes a gracious God affects every response. And I think if you're looking for the gospel in the book of Nehemiah, it's right here. It's in how gracious God is towards Nehemiah in a sinful people to restore them and pave the way for the Messiah that's to come from them. It's grace. Knowing who God is as a gracious God, it transforms what we do. And when it comes to our prayer life, it should be marked by grace. A prayer life that that sees all of what we do as affected by grace. Our sin needs grace. Our success is the result of grace. Nothing has been earned. Nothing will ever be repaid. It is all by grace. But you know, I I think we can feel very uncomfortable with that kind of grace. We'd like to settle for what you might call a little grace. One that is big enough to handle our sins, but not big enough to live on. A real grace we find too scandalous, too dangerous, too uh, free, free enough to ask a king to change his mind and finance a mission to do the opposite of what he originally wanted that's free friends real grace never makes sin safe but it always sets us free that's the nature of grace it's always free it's unmerited favor and listen offering with offering uh, in our life grace begins with an intimate experience of grace yourself. An intimate experience with the one who is gracious so that you can sing grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. Marvelous and infinite matchless grace freely bestowed on all who believe. You who are longing to see his face will this moment his grace receive That's what Nehemiah got. That it's not just for his sin, but it's for all of his life. It's all by grace. And that's what's offered to you and me this morning. That all we do in our lives, the comfort we receive, the courage we display, that it is all shaped by the gracious who that our God is. And the deeper and more that we grasp that truth of who He is, the more it will shape all that you and I ever do. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we are in desperate need of your grace. God, we recognize that it is by your grace that we're not just saved, but it is by your grace that we enjoy the life that you saved us to. God, we understand that your favor can never be repaid. And for those of us in here this morning, Lord, who maybe is hearing a message of grace and we grew up with a message that you've got to earn it. I pray for those of us who fall into that category this morning, Lord, that we would be captivated by a view of your grace that in response, that we would have faith, that we would grasp it, we would take hold of it, what is freely offered through your cross, that we now receive, that we would repent in response to the beauty of your grace, paid for, that all of our sins, all of our life, all of our enjoyment, all of our future, all of our eternity with you is all by your unmerited favor, a gift. That is what as your sons, as your daughters, we get to enjoy. And this is what our prayer, Lord. Meet us in this moment.